This is The Politics Lab, a podcast that puts politics under a microscope. On this week's Speed Round episode, Bill and Phil discussed news that Donald Trump will write, would write to-do lists for his assistant on the back of classified documents, evaluate concern within the Democratic Party about Joe Biden's age, ponder the political implications of Ron DeSantis advising most Floridians to not get the latest booster, examine the dramatic development uh, diplomatic break between Canada and India, and close with a crowd-pleasing round of What's More Stupid. Now let's go to the lab. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Politics Lab. My name is Phil Barker, and I'm a professor of political science at Keene State College. And I'm joined by my colleague and best friend, Dr. Bill Mugg, who is professor of political science at North Central College and who also has COVID. Hey, Bill. Hi. Hey, Phil. I do. I got the COVID again. <laughs> so this is this is my third time. I was telling you before we started taping September, October in the last three years, I get COVID in September and October. And the nice thing is I was actually here. Three years ago, I happened to be out in New Hampshire visiting you. <laughs> Last year, I was in Montreal, Canada, and now I'm. But at least now I'm in Chicagoland. But uh, it appears to me that there is a, there's a pattern. We're social scientists, and we study patterns. Me back in the classroom with students, I get COVID. Right, that just seems to be the routine. What's that? What's the causal? I don't understand the connection there. <laughs> yeah, there's, I don't know. The, the, the exact causal, you know, arrow is not clear here. But um, yeah, it. Uh, I mean, it's in some ways it makes sense, right? You take a whole, you take thousands of college students, you yeah. bring them all together. They give them, you know, they spread COVID around. We're probably, the faculty are probably the only ones getting it because of our weak immune systems. Uh, they seem to be just fine. <laughs> so. No, it sounds like at Keene State, there's all sorts of stuff going around as well. I mean, it's, you know, the beginning of the, this is the, the you know, the age old story anybody who has kids knows whether it's kindergarten all the way up through college but in college you're like putting they're not just you know uh, going to class together they're living together and eating together yeah they don't make the best they don't necessarily make the most sanitary of of uh health decisions either um college this is this this is right so the good news is though that my symptoms have been very mild uh i'm actually technically done with my five days of quarantine but i'm still in like the second day phase of basically masking and still being quarantined. And um, we were talking again before we went on air that there's much less guidance from our institutions on what happens. Uh, Nobody, you know, I haven't found a policy. I'm just following the CDC rules and um, I'm guessing that's what I should do. But there's it just feels like, again, everybody's moved on. Just do do what you feel is right for COVID. That seems to be the overarching philosophy. It's the American way, Bill. (laughs) Yes. You were now so, the other the other thing in the news is you were you were also scheduled to speak at the the opening of the UN right but you had to cancel because of COVID is that correct Yeah they they wanted me to come in and, and uh, do, do a couple diplomatic speeches Yeah so yeah so for our listeners this is a really exciting time. Uh, at the UN, because heads of state from most of the countries of the world all descend on New York and give these. Actually, some of them are interesting, but I had some time yesterday and I flipped on. You can basically watch them. Some of them, Phil, are just so <laughs> boring. Turkmenistan was giving a speech, and I thought this is this is this is your one moment in front of the world community, and you give a a terribly boring speech. Zelensky's was he was pretty fired up. He was calling out Russia in the. Uh, at the UN, but uh, yeah, it, you and I have been uh, been there for the opening of the UN, and it is a it's a very active and uh, sort of diplomatic place. Yeah, it's very cool. Um, it would be cool to be on the floor and watch some of that play out. But yeah, it's you know I guess that makes sense that uh, we don't necessarily some of the world leaders are not uh, necessarily the the best <laughs> at public speaking. But uh, <laughs> no. no, it was I mean it was interesting to see the the uh, Secretary General's whole opening speech was all about climate change, right? We've you know as we've been talking about yeah. that the last few weeks. 
streaks. Like it's it's not really uh, anything you can ignore anymore. And at least the at least Secretary General recognizes that. His speech was pretty dark, where he was talking yeah. about we've entered a climate catastrophe, and and wars. I mean, it was when you watch that, you're going like, I'm not feeling real good about where the yeah. international community is at this moment. So it uh, there's there's room room for improvement. I think is the the takeaway point yeah. there. Yeah. Well, Well, we're going to do something fun today. We're we're going to do uh, five topics. We're going to do sort of a a speed round format. We're going to give them 10 minutes each. So we'll move through them very quickly, but trying to hit on a bunch of different topics this week. Um, Phil, before we dive in, do you want to remind everybody how they can stay connected with us? Yeah, so you can find us at the politicslab.com, and that is where you can find all of our old episodes. You can go and click on this week's episode, and as usual, there are five, four or five articles related to stuff we're talking about if you want to read a little bit more. Uh, And you can also find all our links to social media and email addresses for Bill and I and all of that. It's all at the politic. I can't say it today for some reason, Bill. (laughs) I'm the one. I shouldn't have brain fog. You're the one who has COVID. You're supposed to have, but it is thepoliticslab.com. That's right. I forgot I can use the brain fog uh, excuse for like the next couple of weeks when I sound, you know, when I sound a little incoherent. I I forgot that. That's good. Uh, All right. So we are going to start today with the breaking news about the documents case against former President Trump. Specifically, we learned that one of Trump's longtime assistants, Molly Michael, I think, uh, told federal investigators that Trump repeatedly wrote to do lists for her on documents from the White House that were marked with visible classification markings, documents that were used to brief Trump while he was still in office about phone calls with foreign leaders or other international related matters. I mean, this, this is a wower. Um, additionally, it was also reported that after Trump heard the FBI wanted to interview Michael about the documents at Mar-a-Lago, Trump allegedly told here, quote, you don't know anything about the boxes, unquote. <laughs> um, Phil, that sounds like the kind of language that you, the crime families use. Use. Um, in the other federal case, in the other federal case charging Trump with conspiring to overturn the 2020 election, we learned this last week that special counsel Jack Smith filed for an extraordinary gag order against Donald Trump. Prosecutors have asked the judge overseeing the case to impose a narrowly tailored gag order on him, citing his nearly daily social media attacks on people involved in the case. Uh, according to court papers that were released last Friday. Uh, Phil, we do not pretend to be lawyers, but this seems pretty like a pretty significant development or developments, uh, and none of them are particularly good for the former president. So so let's start with what are your thoughts about using classified documents <laughs> for to-do lists? Is this is this okay? Are you pro doing this? Well, yeah, <laughs> there's a, I, I mean, I, I suppose this is a form of, uh, you know, reusing things, right? And maybe he could, right. he could argue recycling. this is an environmentally friendly in some way. Uh, no, I mean, this again, you like you said, we're not we're not lawyers. And so uh, who knows if, if this is the right take. But but, you know, from a, if I'm on the jury, when I this just seems exceptionally problematic for Trump in the sense yeah. of like if you're trying to find some sort of, you know, proof that he's not only retaining documents, but he's like using, like he's allowing them to go before people who aren't supposed to be seeing top secret documents. This is the evidence, right? If I've written a note to someone on a top secret document, that sort of, you know, makes the connection for me. Um, and so, you know, even the arguments he makes about how he has the, I don't know how he, whatever he was keeping them for whatever reasons, it, it seems to all go out the window with this. I mean, is there, is, is there any, I mean, it just, it just shows the sort of disregard he had for the, 
the the rules of classification, right? I mean, is there any like positive spin or or way of of you know framing this so that for a jury doesn't seem awful? Unless he's going with the recycling argument that he was simply trying to re- reuse, you know, materials. I don't know, because this is bad, right? I mean, it's it suggests that he had these documents. He knew he had these documents and he was just cavalier with them. I mean, that that's the thing. I think there's there's the legal implications to this, which are are bad, right? I mean, she's not uh, being charged with anything. She's not, there's no, you know, I mean, she's just doing this because she saw this and was troubled by it. So legally it's really bad, but it's sort of morally to know that you're the former president and you're so cavalier with these uh, classified documents that you're writing to do lists on the the back of them. It, it shows a lack of disrespect for the presidency, the executive branch, all of that. Right. So I, I think it just, it looks bad. And then this comment that you don't know anything about the boxes, right? She's going to testify that that's what you know he said to her. And again, if we're trying to establish state of mind, right? And it sounds like from the legal argument, you have to show that he knew he was doing something that was illegal. If he's telling people to erase and delete tapes and you don't know anything about the boxes, it suggests a corrupt intent. Um, and legally, all of that seems really, really bad. So I, I, I don't think there's any good spin on this one. I think this is all bad for Trump. Well, yeah, I mean, I think the state of mind thing is is kind of central to the like, it's just just who he is, right? Like, I mean, yeah. we've seen this throughout. We saw this through four years of the presidency, but you saw it before and we've certainly seen it after, which is like the notion that like there is a separate world for Donald Trump and for everyone else, right? This expectation that the rules don't apply to him or he can sort of get away with stuff or that if he thinks it's important, it doesn't, you know, then it, then he can sort of do whatever he wants. That's like very clear in all his actions. And it seems like that's what's playing out here. And that would be, it would be, that wouldn't be, I was gonna say that would be okay. It would be okay sort of legally, if not, you know, socially, (laughs) But it would be okay <laughs> right. if he could like recognize that, I think, and, and sort of try to put some fo- forward, some sort of story, uh, you know, was was able to to sort of recognize the legal jeopardy it puts him in. But he doesn't seem to like he doesn't seem to get that. He seems to think to that, you know, this again, I think he believes to some extent that this is a witch hunt, that he didn't do anything wrong and all of that. Um, but I mean, that also ties to the other thing, right, where like he's this is where something that is good for um I don't know, something that's, uh, you know, maybe good politically for Trump is like disastrous yeah. uh, legally. And so now he's he's in, in this situation where he has spent the last several months like publicly attacking people involved in his trial. <laughs> and so now they're going to ask for a gag order. Um, and, and, and again, like he that might work. The stuff, the public attacks might work for him in terms of securing a nomination. It might work in like convincing his you know followers that this is all a hunt, but it's going to, it's not going to work in a court of law. And this is where it's all going to, you know, it's, it's all going to blow up for him at some point. That's right. And especially, I mean, I think both of these cases he's in trouble, but the documents case seems like just fairly clear cut that there's real no good defense for him. Uh, But also with the January 6th and, you know, the overturning the election stuff, too, he's also put himself in a bad position. And 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 the other impact of all of this is this this is bad for our legal system to have somebody daily and hourly attacking the system to say all of these judges are corrupt and all the process is corrupt. And, um, you know, it undermines faith in these institutions. And we've spent a lot of time thinking about the importance of norms and rules and laws and, and institutional support 
support. And what he is doing is he's burning all that down for the sake of his own legal and political career. And it's it's, it's just sort of dangerous. We're going to hear this for the next you know, until these trials and actually till all the trials are done, he's going to continue to do whatever he can to put himself in a better position. And yeah, the gag order is an interesting thing because I, I get why they're doing it at the same time. He's not going to follow it. And then right. what are they going to put him in house arrest? Right. He is going to look to challenge every way possible. And I, I guess I'm wondering whether the special prosecutor is willing to go so far as to say, you know, hey, maybe throw him in jail, maybe put him under house arrest, do something to get him to learn his lesson. But Trump doesn't learn lessons. Yeah, well, and I, I mean, I, I think you're right. And this is where we get to all. I, I loved what you were saying, because I, I, I was writing as you were saying it. I was writing norms down on my piece yeah. of paper because it, <laughs> this is an example of where we rely so much on these unspoken rules of of politics and that Trump has challenged those in ways that make us sort of, you know, go to these, uh, uh, I don't know, these these logical like we, we have to actually follow through on certain things like the idea of yeah. not especially during a campaign, attacking judges and the legal system is just something that, you know, we just relied on as an unspoken rule when people believe in democracy and, and the justice system. And so he's pushing through all that. Um, I, I don't know, in terms of like what they do, this is that would be interesting. But I, I feel like the special <coughs> prosecutor, you know, we've talked about it. I have the impression that he's very like he's thought through the ramifications yeah. of everything. And I, I can't imagine that he asks for a gag order without being prepared to back it up if it comes yes. to that. Right. And so if, if, if he gets this gag order and Trump continues to do stuff, I, I kind of feel like, I mean, his whole thing is nobody's above the law. Right. And so yeah. I feel like he's going to follow through on it, but that's where, again, we've relied on these unspoken rules and now we're having to, when, when, when Trump doesn't buy into them, we've got to figure out like, how do we navigate this? Because now yeah. it is like, how do you, how do you impose a gag order on someone who is a presidential candidate, right? Who's like, so we have this issue of like political speech versus, uh, yeah. you know, uh, legal speech. And how do we do that? And then if he violates the gag order, how do you put a presidential nominee or candidate into yeah. house arrest or jail or whatever? And, you know, the legal system says you would do that, right? But it's going to put all sorts of stress and strain on our, you know, democratic institutions, which... Um, yeah, I mean, it's just, it's a whole mess that we have to kind of untangle because of, well, as we've talked about before, because of the, the Trump phenomenon and like the, whatever the Republican party's unwillingness to sort of, you know, do, do this on their own. Cause if you, if Philip Barker was doing this, you would be, they would, they would throw your ass in jail, right? I mean, a hundred percent. You know, if somebody, if somebody was threatening, if you as a normal citizen were threatening the person prosecuting you, contacting witnesses and trying to intimidate them over the social judge. media, like, yeah, yeah, yeah there, there would be no question that you would be, you know, they would make an example of you. And it's, it, he is in a unique position as being a former president to challenge all of that. And like you said, all the first amendment rights, he will argue, um, it, it is certainly going to be a challenge challenging, challenging situation. But Bill, I thought our justice system was blind and treated everyone equally, regardless of their income or, or power. <laughs> I, I was telling you, I just watched this four part series on Nixon and Watergate. And that's not true. When the president does it, it's not legal. <laughs> All right. Should we, hey, should we transition? 
Yeah, let's do it. So, okay. Uh, for our second topic, uh, you know, Bill, I, I don't know if you're aware of this, but Joe Biden, he's old. Um, <laughs> if he is reelected, he will be 82 years old when he starts, when he starts, not when he finishes, but when he starts his second term. And most Americans, it turns out, are not thrilled about this fact. So a, a recent survey found that, quote, 77% of the public, including 69% of Democrats, think he's too old to be effective for four more years. Uh, this week, David Ignatius wrote an op-ed for the Washington Post, which we've linked on the website, in which he acknowledges that Joe Biden has been an exceptionally successful president and has accomplished much of what he set out to do in his first term policy-wise, but also sort of, you know, restructuring, like re, you know, building up supports for democracy and whatnot. But, but Ignatius goes on to say that, quote, I don't think Biden and Vice President Harris should run for re-election. It's painful to say that, given my admiration for what much of what they have accomplished. But if he and Harris campaign together in 2024, I think Biden risks undoing his greatest achievement, which was stopping Trump. So, Bill, unless something dramatic happens in the next month or so, um, we're looking at a Biden-Harris ticket for the Dems in 2024. So this is, you know, this has sparked a lot of conversation. But, uh, you know, should the party be panicking about Biden's age and in particular the way the American public perceives his age? This is such an interesting question. And I feel like the, the conversations that are being had are not really productive. So on the one side, you've got all these Democrats who the panic is the right word. Um, you know, they were feeling good about Biden for a long time, and now they've just realized that he's old and they're panicking. And on the other side, the Republicans, and if you turn on Fox News, all they're doing is is editing to show Joe Biden stumbling over words. And, you know, the Fox News debate is that Biden can't put two sentences together anymore. And that's not true, right? I mean, um, so I feel like we're not having the productive conversation we should have, which is, is I think, a fair one. Joe Biden is old. I don't I think he's showing some of those signs. I think his his mental capacity is still there. He's still a thoughtful guy. He's still doing a good job. Now, you can ask, you know, will four or five years from now, will he be in the same place? Maybe, maybe not. These are legitimate questions to ask. Um, but I also step away and I say, if, if you removed Joe Biden's age, if we couldn't see how old he was, if we were behind the veil of ignorance about his age, we would look and say this is one of arguably one of the more successful presidencies we've had in a long time. Where in terms of, as you mentioned, foreign policy, he has been on top of things. He himself has driven the process. His ability to get bipartisan legislation is through. I mean, he, it's not as if he is simply a figurehead. He is doing these things. He just got back from a trip around the world where he was, you know, meeting in Vietnam. And, and he's, when you come back from international travel, you're out for like a week. <laughs> and Joe Biden is, is in different time zones traveling and coming back and still doing events. I mean, so I, I don't think there are signs that it is affecting how he's doing the job now. Um, but I think it's a fair question to ask is, you know, can he do it moving forward? I, I don't know. I, I'm, I'm talking myself in circles. I don't, I don't know what to think of it right now. I feel like there's elements of ageism to some of this critique. Um, but I also think at its core, it is a fair question about having so many candidates that are so old. So, you talk now because I didn't really clear anything up. <laughs> well, I'll, well, let me pick it up and talk in circles myself because I'm just <laughs> like you. I, I'm really torn on this. Like, you know, there, there really is kind of there are two sides to this, right? On on one side, um, it does feel like you know we we should be judging candidates by their ideas and by their you know capacity and capability. And like you said, Joe Biden has been really successful. Um, I think he's a little you know blasé or whatever, but that's yeah. part of why he's been successful. I think some of that you know the critiques that get 
thrown at him are, you know, again, like he's not dynamic Barack Obama, but also as we've talked about, it makes it sort of hard to hate him in, in the way that we've talked about. In some ways, I feel like the age thing is what we've come around to as a way to hate him because it's hard to latch onto anything else as a thing to, to, to dislike about him. And so, you know, on one hand, it does sort of reek of ageism. We should, we should elect candidates based on, on their effectiveness. And he's been remarkably effective. Um, on the other hand, right, like you're saying, 82 is not young. Um, by the time he's finished with his term, he'll be 86. And I think this is where you get into, you know, you get into actuarial data. And he's yes. already passed the average life expand, uh, like life expectancy of an American. The odds that he dies in the next, and this is not, you know, I'm not, this is not meant as like a personal attack. It's nothing about him. But when you hit 82, yeah. the odds of living four more years, um, they're, they're dropping pretty quickly. Yeah. Right. And so, right. um, I, you know, I don't think that that's, uh, I don't think that's something to be disregarded. And I think, you know, uh, even if Joe Biden didn't want to run again, I mean, part of the Ignatius article is that if if this is on people's minds, then they're going to look to who the vice president is. And and Kamala Harris is even less popular yeah, right. than Joe Biden. And so, you know, his argument was essentially there, there was an opportunity to change the ticket, to find somebody else, to think about sort of, you know, naming the kind of heir apparent to the, the Democrat. Um, party. And and Biden hasn't done any of that, right? And Biden hasn't like stepped back to say, you know, there's no obvious next person, but that's what the democratic process is for. And, and so, uh, yeah, I mean, I feel like he's, you know, the, the critique of the Ignatius article is that Joe Biden's really bad at saying no. And it feels like this yeah. is sort of an example of that. Like if Joe Biden could step back and, you know, like you were saying, veil of if he could be behind the veil of ignorance and decide yeah, right. what to do, um, then then I think he would even say that having the party led by an 84 year old is probably not ideal at this moment in time. Yeah. What we need is stability and consistency and all that other stuff. So. Uh, I don't know, but then I, so here I'll, I'll talk in my, in circles one more time and then I'll throw it back to you, which is, um, the other part of it is, you know, Ignatius argues that, uh, Biden is potentially endangering the, the whole, you know, like that, that by running again, he might actually make it easier, essentially what he's arguing, make it easier for Trump to win. But when I think about like who else is like, it's back to that idea again of he's, he's sort of boring and who else from the democratic party? Like, I feel like the Republicans might be thrilled at any number of other potential candidates who would actually, you know, maybe make it easier for Trump to point to them as a problem right now. People may not love Joe Biden, but they're not scared of him in the way that unless, you know, unless they're fully in the Fox ecosystem. Um, And so that's, you know, maybe maybe he is the easiest way to defeat Trump again, even this time. Well, and that brings up an important question, right? One is is winning election, right? Is Joe Biden young enough to win an election? The second one is, is he young enough to to govern for another four years? I I think. I think he's certainly young enough to win another election. I'm less concerned about that. I'm more thinking about the four years afterwards. And I think there is a sense in which the Democrats uh, don't know how good they've gotten it with Joe Biden, right? I mean, he's been very, very successful. Um, I, I think it's entirely possible that either at some sort of debate or at a speech, he looks younger and then this issue goes away, right? I mean, because we're, we're so fickle in terms of... of the, the news story of the day, if Joe Biden has a good event uh, and looks dynamic and young again, and he's given some of those speeches. I mean, I think about the speech a few years ago when he gave in Poland, he looked really young, right? And mm-hmm. dynamic and still there. And if you have a moment like that, the American public will forget 
about this. And there was a similar movement when Obama was running for a re-election. It wasn't age. It was, you know, can he do it again? Right. And the Democrats panic and then they realize, oh, no, he's good. And then he wins an election. So, um, you know, that doesn't get at the issue of will he still be effective at 86? Uh, But I think some of this is the normal Democratic panic. Um, I think Republicans (laughs) actually would prefer uh, somebody else other than Joe Biden. I think they don't think they'll say that, but I think Joe Biden is actually somebody tough to run against. Well, and as long as the Republicans are nominating Donald Trump, it's hard to level the critique of Joe Biden being too old. If the Republicans had, you know, a 43 year old candidate, if Trump was 43 instead of however old he's, he's not, he's younger than Joe Biden, but not by much. A couple of years, I think. Um, uh, it, it makes this a, a, a bigger, um, a bigger issue. But uh, yeah, I mean, I think I, th- I think you're right. There's always this. I, I think it's a partly a response to the the stakes, right? The stakes are so high at this moment that it, it makes people, uh, you know, I don't know. Second guess is even the wrong. It, it does bring about panic because if you if the Democrats make the wrong choice and and Donald Trump wins this election, um, it's 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 not going to be good. But I also come back around to. This isn't necessarily an argument for Joe Biden, but uh, Joe Biden's numbers aren't great. But we've also talked extensively about how Donald Trump's numbers aren't great yeah, either, right? right? Exactly. Like, and, and it's not just that they're not great. I think Joe. I think you know a lot of people aren't thrilled about Joe Biden, but I think Joe Biden's ceiling is much higher than Donald yeah. Trump's ceiling, right? There are people right. out there who will will pinch their nose and vote for. I think there are more people who will pinch their nose and vote for Joe Biden than people who will pinch their nose and vote for Donald Trump after the six years of. Donald Trump we've just experienced. That's that's exactly right. And I think the other, I know we need to move on, but the other final thought I would have is that it also was revealing about politicians and Joe Biden. Um, it's hard to walk away from power. Mm-hmm. I'm guessing in a quiet moment, Joe Biden initially thought when he won the presidency that I'll do four years and then walk away. Uh, and then he's had some success. And, and when you have success, you think like, well, maybe I'll stick around. I can keep doing this. Right. And so there certainly is ego involved in all of this. And Joe Biden has convinced himself that he is the one who defeated Donald Trump once and he can do it again and nobody else can do it. So I think there's 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 a, a personal aspect to it as well. Well, wasn't it? I, I have to remember, I feel like when he made that, when he officially decided, like when he was making the decision about running again, I, it was, I have to go back and look, but in my mind, it was in the midst of some successes. It was like yes. right after he came back from that Ireland trip where people like worshiped yes. him like a demigod yes. and then he came back and was like, well, I think I'll stay another four years. So yeah, you know, he had success and they thought, they thought Democrats were going to get hammered in the midterms. They ended right. up doing better and he goes to Ireland and they're cheating. No, I mean, all those things can convince a person they're a little, maybe they're indispensable in a way that they really aren't. So yeah. <laughs> All right, let's move on. So, Phil, for this next this next topic hits pretty close to home. As I sit quarantined in my basement, (laughs) worrying about the health implications of having COVID for the third time, I learned that Florida governor and presidential candidate Ron DeSantis came out this week and advised most Floridians against getting the new booster shot recommended by the federal health officials. In a written statement, DeSantis said, quote, I will not stand by and let the FDA and the CDC use healthy Floridians as guinea pigs for a new booster shots that have not been proven safe or effective, unquote. Uh, we should note that he was following up on the advice of his own Surgeon General, who the day before uh, prior urged people under 65 not to get boosted. So that's the position of the top health official in Florida. If you're under 65, don't get boosted. Uh, DeSantis reiterated that position the next day, stating that federal health official authorities have been corrupted by ideology. And for the record, I, me personally, Bill Muck thinks that ideology he's referencing is science. <laughs> so, 
Uh, Phil, I'm interested in hearing your take on this because this is this one's troubling me. I'm struggling with this one. Um, now, DeSantis graduated from Yale University and Harvard Law School, so he's a smart guy. What, what do you make of this? I, I mean, I think so. I, there's there's a couple of different like big conclusions that I draw from this, or that this illustrates at least. And one is about the state of the Republican Party, and one yeah. is about what I put in as I jotted down here. The technical term is the stupidity of the DeSantis campaign. So, what, um, <laughs> yes. the, in terms of the state of the Republican Party, right? I mean, this is like again. To talk about being corrupted by ideology is is like incredibly ironic, right? Because this is what is happening, right? I'm going to refuse to accept science because of you know whatever the my political stance is, but it's I mean this also shows the extent to which the Republican Party has become so like uh, it, wrapped up in conspiracy theories. I mean to, to like the idea that you know the CDC is using healthy Floridians as guinea pigs is like you know there's this that's that's a little conspiracy ish. Um, yes. uh, but uh, you know, this is just like the sort of the, the tip of the iceberg and sort of in terms of the sorts of things that the Republican party sort of rallies around these days, right? Everything from the election being stolen to, you know, COVID is, is, uh, um, uh, uh you know, whatever it's, it's made up and that, you know, we have microchips and all of that stuff. So the fact that this is the Republican party and that, that, candidates feel the need to sort of do say this sort of stuff is um it, it shows you again the dangerous place we're in the other story that sort of points to that also is Mitt Romney this this last week who yes. announced yeah. that he's not running again and in interviews and in comments that he's made afterwards he's talked explicitly about it's the Ted Cruz's of and the you know Ron DeSantis falls into this category people who know better right they're smart they know better and they're making this like I, Ron DeSantis is doing this as a political stunt. He knows that, and again, he he got vaccinated, right? He he's right. like this is not something that um, he. It's not actually the thing he believes in. He's doing the thing that's appealing to the masses. But this is how we spiral and how we end up in conspiracy theories. This is appealing to the people, so I'm going to say it, which makes them believe that it's actually true. And it's just a, a mess. So, so on one hand, that's well. I mean, maybe I'll stop there and I'll say my second sure. point in a second after you have a chance to respond to that. Yeah, no, I, I feel very much the same way. It's sort of this attack on science and attack on expertise, and we've kicked that around in the past. But this seems like a particularly egregious example of this because there are issues with with COVID and the pandemic that are debatable, right? We can have a real conversation about masks and when's a good time to wear masks and when do you take them off? When do you open schools? You know, how do you, you know, when should businesses open? These are all things that there there's, there's debate over, right? Is, you know, should we open earlier? Like there, there's real conversation to be had. Vaccines? No, unless like you're really convinced that there are microchips in the vaccine, there really is no downside to the vaccines. And, um, you know, so there's, it's an argument that is, a really dangerous one to make because Florida's death rate is higher than others in the country. When you sort of break down uh, the vaccine numbers, like, you know, there was somebody on, there was one of the vaccine scientists talking about this that in the United States, 200,000 people have died because of this sort of misinformation, mm. uh, people who didn't get vaccinated, who, who likely would have lived. And right. So there are real 
consequences to this. So it, it's just particularly dangerous and pernicious when somebody as smart as, as DeSantis is. And like you said, all these guys, they, they know what they're doing and they're doing it for political reasons. So it just it's it just feels icky to me. And it suggests that the there's a chunk of the American public that is just looking for stupidity. Right. They right. just want a dumb argument because it you know it just fits their sort of worldview. So. All right. So that's my take. What was your second it's, point? Well, it's, I mean, uh, just to quickly sort yeah. of I mean, it is what we've talked about in previous previous weeks about the, the ideally people run for office because they want to like make the country or the state a better place. And, and DeSantis yeah. should be doing, you know, acting in the best interest of his citizens. And, and like you said, like the, the, the death rate has been higher in Florida because they have a, a more vulnerable population. They have a larger elderly yeah. population and all sorts of other stuff. And so rather than doing the thing that's best for his state, even if it's unpopular, right, he's doing the popular, which reveals that it's about power and act and, and getting elected and not actually about making, you know, the country better in some way. Way. So, uh, yeah, I mean, that, that's, it is it is disheartening to see. But on the on the on the other hand, like the second point that I was going to make is that it doesn't just reveal where we are in the party, but it also reveals the extent to which I think the DeSantis campaign is dumb um, yeah. in that, like what they have tried to do for the last year is essentially be Donald Trump. Right. And yeah. And you can't like he's not going to be able to out Trump Donald Trump. So he's going in on conspiracy theories and, and right. like the, all this other stuff, it, the, the way that, that DeSantis, the reason why he sort of rose at first as a likely candidate was because of his effectiveness in sort of manage, whether you agree with it or not. And I have all sorts of issues with the way he managed the pandemic, but that was what people were drawn to the way he governed during the pandemic and managed to not shut things down and all these other things. Um, and so, you know, embracing the difference and the, like embracing that I'm going to govern well and not get caught up in, uh, you know, conspiracy. It's kind of the, the tactic that Chris Christie has taken. So in New Hampshire, there's, you yeah. know, we were like getting ads all the time right now. And that's the approach that Chris Christie has taken, which is that I can govern well, right? I can bring people together and, and all that other stuff. And I think DeSantis had a chance if he had gone that way, but instead he's doing this bizarre, I'm Trump. And he's trying to like, yes. by pushing, by, by, by discouraging the booster, he's trying to like frame Trump as the guy who like approved the vaccine in the first <laughs> right. place. And nobody's going to like, if you don't <laughs> no. like Trump, you're not looking at Trump and saying, boy, he did great things for COVID. And if you like Trump, you're not looking at him and saying, I don't like him because he helped with the COVID booster. So it's like the tactics just feel totally off mark and, and in a way that that is it's not surprising to me that Trump continues to sort of open a gap between he and and DeSantis because like why you know if if that's what you want then you're going for Trump not for Ron DeSantis yeah, this is such a great point right because DeSantis is is it's such a, I, I agree with you it's it's a terrible campaign strategy unless Trump goes to jail or dies right that's right. the only way <laughs> right. where it works for him which both those things may actually happen, right? right? So you, you don't know. Maybe maybe it will prove to be a good strategy. But you know, DeSantis is looking for space to attack Trump. And you know, where has Trump not been fully Trump? Well, he he created the vaccine, right? <laughs> so that's where you say that's where our space is. We're gonna go after him, and I'm gonna go after the booster. And it just again, it is so awful, right? I, I, as as a human being, I would feel bad knowing that my advice is likely to lead to greater deaths. Like I just at a human level, I would think that that would weigh on me, that my own political ambitions are more important than the safety of Americans. I, 
I don't know. I mean, I, I know when you're president, you have to make a lot of hard decisions, right? And that's not easy. But this feels like one. This isn't one of those categories, right? Yeah. You should tell everybody to get a vaccine, you know, get the booster. This is what you should do. It's, you know, the science is just overwhelming and, and, and you know, that it's clear. Uh, but you're going to make a political calculation that this is the one area you can out Trump Trump. It's just, again, it, it strikes me as despicable in that way. Yeah. So before I, we, we, I know where we need to move on in our speed yeah. round stuff here in a minute, but as, as we've been talking about this, this thought dawned on me and I've never thought of this before, but it, it, there's a part of me that thinks, oh, I could be encouraged by the poor showing of Ron DeSantis in the sense of there was some belief as this election cycle neared that what Republicans wanted was like Trump's ideology in a sort of more sane, you know, less, uh, I don't know, less chaotic package. Right. And maybe that's what Trump. Yeah. Yes. And maybe that's what Ron DeSantis was. And, And what we're seeing is it's not that Ron DeSantis is taking off. Right. Trump has maintained his supporters. And as Ron DeSantis has tried to be, you know, less chaotic Trump. It hasn't, it's fizzled. Right. And so maybe that's encouraging in that it shows that like the, the, maybe it's another form of showing that the appeal or the reach of Trumpism is in fact (coughs) limited that, that there's, it's just, you know, a, a repackaged Trump doesn't appeal in new ways. It's not that that ideology is what people necessarily want. It's still this kind of a third of Americans and that's the, the most you can get out of it. No, that's a really good point. I wish, I wish that the the Chris Christies and the more traditional centrist candidates were getting polling above one or two percent because that yep. would suggest that there yep. was real space. And but I mean, I, DeSantis's team probably has just figured that's where the voters are and that's where I'm going to go. And and we'll see once the voting starts taking place. Maybe we'll see there's more of a center. But that is an interesting point that um, there's probably a you know there's roughly like 35 to 37 percent of Republicans that are Trump MAGA ones, and that that number doesn't seem there's not room enough for him and Donald Trump in that space. So, yeah. all right, we got to we got to jump international. Let's talk about what's going on in Canada and India. Yeah. So um, this summer, a Canadian citizen named Hardeep Singh Najjar was killed in British Columbia by two masked attackers in this like surprise attack. Uh, Najjar was an outspoken Sikh activist who advocated for the independence of a Sikh state from Indian rule. Uh, these views led the Indian government to declare him a terrorist. And then just this week, Justin Trudeau announced that, quote, agents of the Indian government were involved in the assassination of Najjar. So it's it's not just that he was, you know, attacked randomly, that it was actually the Indian government essentially put out a hit. Um, the killing of a Canadian citizen on Canadian soil by a foreign government is, uh, I, I put, I, I wrote down as I was thinking this through, a big deal, but this is yeah. a huge deal, right? This <laughs> yes, is like a, yes. a massive uh, thing. Um, India has denied involvement, but the allegation has already led both countries to expel diplomats and has understandably strained the relationship between the two states. It's also a thorn in the side of Joe Biden, who has worked to strengthen ties to the Indian government recently, particularly as as he's tried to sort of build um, uh, a coalition to uh, push back against Russia. Uh, Bill, this is, like I said, a really, really big deal. What What is your take? What, like, how do you begin to make sense of the Indian government putting out a hit on a on a Canadian citizen in Canada? This is, like you said, it's a huge, huge deal. Now, it is not getting a ton of international attention because I think it's Canada and India. But let's just start from, you know, this is, it reminds one of Jamal Khashoggi, right, where the Saudis killed 
uh, a U.S. citizen, right? And that is a major, major big deal. Now, there's probably more evidence to come, but my guess is, knowing what we know about how Canada operates, they are a careful and cautious international actor. They are not uh, Venezuela. They're not right. Cuba in terms of being bombastic. They're thoughtful, careful, and wouldn't make this allegation or accusation unless there was some evidence to support it. And when they say agents of the state carried this out, I think they are suggesting that this goes pretty high up, whether it gets to the prime minister or not. I guess that's more information I would like to know. This is a major deal. If you've got one state assassinating a citizen of another state because they believe that they are a terrorist or a threat. I mean, this is just sort of bonkers internationally in terms of the the norms. If we're going there, the violating actually international law uh, Mm -hmm. and norms of of violating the sovereignty of a state. So uh, I think Canada is absolutely right to be upset. Um, I I'm sort of wondering what's going on in India. We, you and I have talked about the the democratic backsliding and the Hindu mm-hmm. nationalism that we're seeing in there. If there's now evidence that India is now going and targeting foreign national citizens of other countries to pursue its own sort of domestic agenda, that that puts India in a very, very different place. Um, so maybe let's start there and then we can talk about Joe Biden, because this is a pain in Joe Biden's ass, too, as well. Yeah. I mean, what's your thought on just just this dynamic and what it means for India? Yeah, I mean, I, we, you know, there's been a lot of talk, a lot of political scientists have talked a lot about the 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 shift. I mean, when we talk about countries who have seen like a rise in populism and this sort of national yeah. new nationalism, um, and and whatnot, uh, you know, India's in that group, right? And so, so the, the you know the Modi government has over the past you know number of years has has made pretty significant shifts, changing in in their citizenship laws, and so in a lot of ways targeting Sikh separatists um, fits. It's like it falls in line with other actions that India has taken in terms of kind of how they have shifted their national identity and how they have shifted sort of politics at the national level. Um, But like you said, there's like there's a it is a big step from like increasing nationalist rhetoric in your country to taking that you know, overseas to other countries who are potential allies, like not necessarily strong yeah. allies, but not, not enemies. Right. It's not like, it's not like this is the, I mean, the U S you know, assassinating, uh, whatever, somebody in North Korea or Iran or whatever. Right. right? I mean, right. these are, this is, um, and so it is really shocking. I mean, it shows like if, if it is true and again, I don't necessarily have any reason to believe it. It isn't true because this is, you know, Canada, it's not just Canadian intelligence. Canada is part of the sort of five eyes or whatever, like they share intelligence with that. I mean, they have access to, you know, some of the best intelligence in the world. And so, um, I, I tend to think unless, you know, proven otherwise, I tend to, to believe Trudeau in this particular scenario, but yeah, I mean, it, it is, um, this, this is a, a huge deal. And I think it would lead you to be, or it should lead other countries to be cautious in their dealings with India. Like, can they be a sort of reliable partner um, if this is the sort of action they take? I mean, to put it in perspective, right? Like this is, if, if this were allowed or acceptable, this sort of change in sovereignty would, would mean again, you know, like people who speak out against Russia could just be assassinated in the United States by the Russian government. And of course that would be like an act of war, right? Like it's so unacceptable. So yeah, I mean, it is a huge, huge deal and it raises all sorts of red flags and, and exclamation marks when you're, when you're thinking about the, the Modi government right now. 
I think that's a, such an important point because it, it forces us to ask the question of what type of international actor is India going to be? Um, and, and this is not the conduct of a sort of legitimate international actor, right? right. When Saudi Arabia did this and, and murdered Khashoggi, Joe Biden was clear to say that Saudi Arabia is a pariah uh, and that we were going to disconnect, you know, disconnect with Saudi Arabia for a, for a <laughs> while. And then oil prices shot up and we reconnected, which is maybe a good, good way to think about Joe Biden, right? Because the Biden administration has looked to India as a central player in the sort of Asian pivot, right? The balancing against China. Yep. India is, is a is an ally in that effort. And again, it's not a super close relationship, right. but it's a good relationship. And uh, the United States is looking to expand economic ties, political ties, uh, potentially military ties, right? As you as you think about balancing both China and potentially Russia moving forward. So this is not good news when Joe Biden sees this, that, the, that India is assassinating Canadian citizens for some sort of domestic dispute. This this is going to complicate the way in which the United States and India interact, right? It's, it's got to, doesn't it? A hundred percent. Yeah. And I, I mean, yeah. it, this shows the complexity of international relations. I mean, the thing I think about yeah. is, you know, we've talked a lot about this the potential new Cold War between the U.S. and China or between the West and like a China-Russia, uh, you know, a, a block. And there's some question about like, where does India fall in that? And in some ways they are sort of the, the non-aligned movement of, of the yes. moment, right? Like they're not taking sides. But but we're wanting them to even if they're not going to be like our best friend, we don't want them to drift towards the, yes. the Russia China yeah. side. Um, and I think I think India, I don't know. I mean, this is the interesting problem with like a rising power. Right. I, we've talked about like China has sort of gotten increasingly bold. And, and as India gets, you know, as its economy grows, it's now the largest country in the world population wise. Like, do they start to feel that in a way that makes them act differently than they have in the past? But um, this is the the dilemma. So as we think about it in the lens of a Cold War, just like during the 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 actual Cold War, there was this dilemma that the U.S. had to play, where we wanted to stand up for human rights and democracy and Western values and all of that. But there were times where defeating the enemy, defeating communism, meant that we had to make these really ugly relationships yeah. with crappy, you know, authoritarians and, and whatnot. And I, 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 you know, I don't, I don't even, I still don't know how to make sense of whether that's the right thing or the wrong thing to do. Um, it feels morally wrong, even if it is strategically right. Um, but it feels like this is the situation we find ourselves in as, as the U S is trying to build coalitions against Russia and against China and whatnot. Um, we have problems with problematic allies, right? And it's not yeah. just the Indias of the world. It's the Polands and the Hungaries and the Turkeys and, you know, all these countries that have been a part of democratic backsliding and populist movements and whatnot, but we need them at the same time. And so how do you navigate that? How do you stand up for the values that are important, democracy and human rights, while also not critiquing the allies that you need on your side? And I, it's a difficult balance. And that none of that gets at this is not as simple as Joe Biden saying, I have to maintain a relationship with India because it's important. Maintaining that relationship with India now strains the relationship with Canada as well. So exactly. it, this is a, you know, yeah. it, it's just a, it shows the complexity and the difficulty. I think it, it, it is people want to look at world events and say, here's the right thing that we should, should do. And it's almost never that simple, right? And this is, yeah. this is the perfect example of it. 
This is why realists are uncomfortable talking about right and wrong and then instead talk about interest, right? States pursue their interests. So it's in the interest of the United States to maintain a relationship with India as it tries to balance against China. Um, but but these sort of human rights issues complicate all of that. If this had been North Korea who carried out this in North Korea, Joe Biden would have been second. You know, he, uh, Justin Trudeau would have said this and Joe Biden would have been on, on, on the TV condemning it as well. Whereas, you know, the Biden administration was sort of quiet about it. I haven't heard any official condemnation of this, right? I'm sure Canada would much prefer if, if the United States had been bold to say, hey, this was wrong because it was wrong, right? You, you shouldn't do this. India shouldn't do this. Um, and uh, it suggests that India is, is drifting in an anti-democratic direction. But you're, you, you said that so well. The United States and Biden is, is trapped in terms of trying to best pursue U.S. strategic interests. Yeah, I mean, the, the Canadian government hasn't, I mean, to sort of build on what you're saying, the Canadian government hasn't talked about how they they haven't shared any information on how they know this. And it's because the law enforcement investigation is still ongoing. And it sounds like they may potentially share it at some point. But even though it's not publicly shared because of the relationship between the US and Canada, I would assume that Canada has shared that intelligence with the United States. So the decisions that Joe Biden, I mean, you have to you have to assume that Joe Biden has seen the confirming evidence yeah. that Canada has and is still not condemning it, right, which is that shows the extent to which we're uh, trying to sort of walk this tightrope. But again, you know, India is an important ally, but, uh, you know, can't you don't want to you don't want to damage your relationship with Canada over again, someone who, uh, you know, India may be an ally moving forward, but we're not we don't we don't know. Right. It's 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 again, it's it's really hard to do. It's even possible that the U.S. was the actor that helped Canada get this yes. information, right? Um, no, you're absolutely. That's why foreign policy is so complicated and so difficult, and inevitably forces you to engage in compromises that you don't want to do. Uh, yeah. it, it's it's hard, yeah. So, all right, should we move on to our, our final fun topic, Phil? Let's let's do it. All right. So for this final topic, we're playing one of our most favorite games. What's more stupid? Uh, in this game, I will read three recent political developments, and then Phil and I will use our our best uh, political sciency skills to determine which one of these is in fact most stupid. Um, you know, this is this is where being a political scientist really comes in is yeah. handy. It's great. I, I, so before we go further, Bill, you said yeah. this was a crowd pleaser, and I just feel the need to let the audience respond. All right, there you go. <laughs> That's right. All right. So situation I, I used my soundboard. Now we can keep moving forward. Go ahead. <laughs> this is good. All right. Uh, situation number one. So U.S. Representative Lauren Boebert uh, was escorted out of a Sunday night performance of Beetlejuice, uh, the Beetlejuice musical in downtown Denver this last week, accused by venue officials of vaping, singing, recording and causing a disturbance during the performance. Bobert initially denied vaping Otherwise, and said that it was known probably as a night out with Bill. <laughs> yes, that's right. <laughs> so, so she initially denied vaping and said that it was probably just the fog machine, which I, that's a great excuse, until video from the theater clearly showed she was vaping. Uh, the video also showed, uh, showed what some have described as inappropriate groping between Bobert and her boyfriend at a family-friendly musical. <laughs> Phil, what's your thoughts on the stupidity of Lauren Bobert at Beetlejuice? I mean, this, <laughs> I, <laughs> this, is, this is, again, I feel like on, on when we've done what's more stupid in the past, we've talked about different levels of stupidity, yes. right? And yeah, I feel yeah, like yeah. this is, this is, uh, um, 
I mean, this is, I think it says more, it it is stupid, right? That this is how a (laughs) a U.S. member of, a member of Congress is acting in public. But I think what it says more is about, it says more about the stupidity of politics in America today, that this is a member of Congress, right? Like not that long ago, this would have been the the end of a political career, but it feels (laughs) like this is just like, in in many ways, Lauren Boebert is just kind of the the epitome of, of Americanism at this point, right? You go out and you vape in the, you get mad when people tell you you can't do stuff, you, you know, you know, whatever. And then only you, you lie about it. And then the video comes out proving that, that you were wrong. But yeah, I mean, it, it is shy. It is stupid to me that she is a member of Congress. It's even stupider that she was reelected as a member of yes, Congress yes. after this sort of behavior. <laughs> I, well, I mean, what do you think about this and the stupidity? Cla- cla- yeah, again, category? this is, this is shades of stupidity, right? At an individual level, Bulbert is stupid because- yes. People are going to know when you're there, right? And people are going to be watching everything you do. So if people are going to be watching what you do, don't vape inside a crowded theater, right? I mean, that's sort of (laughs) stupid. And then to come out and say it's a fog machine is extra stupid because you got to think yourself, hey, maybe somebody's got a video. Yes, of course there's video, right? So the the vaping was stupid. The blaming the fog machine was stupid. And then there's sort of the hypocrisy of it all, right? There's a sort of a meta hypocrisy stupid to, to, to preach conservative of values and then to be groping your partner at a at a family friendly event is also also <laughs> stupid so it does feel All like right, this we- is like sort of evidence of what it the, the what it what conservative values means has changed as well right like it's this sort of defiant <laughs> right. defiance and and whatnot but yes yeah it's that's stupid. that's that's an interesting point too, right? This yeah. is this is a different. T- yeah, that's I hadn't thought about that. All right, all right. Situation number two: uh, Recently, Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer quietly directed the Senate Sergeant at Arms to no longer enforce the Chamber's informal dress code for its members. Under that standard, men and women had been required to wear business attire on the Senate floor, which has meant coat and tie for men. Uh, the new directive will allow uh, Senator John Fetterman, who tends to favor gym shorts and hoodies over the business attire traditionally required in the chamber, to linger on the Senate floor before and after votes, which he couldn't do before. All but three Republican senators responded with a letter to the Senate majority blasting his decision to stop enforcing the requirement of business attire. Um saying it was disrespectful. Senator Susan Collins criticized the change, saying, quote, obviously, I'm not going to wear a bikini, but the fact <laughs> is, as I understand it, I could. <laughs> Phil, there are two elements, and that's what I like about this, of to this, what's more stupid? Is the decision stupid, or is the reaction to the decision the real stupid here? Mm. What, do, what do you think? This is a good one. I don't know if I put enough thought into this before we started yeah. started recording. So, <laughs> I, you know, I I mean, this is where I, this is where you and I. I don't know. Maybe you'll totally disagree with me. This is where I like. I'm old, but I'm not old. Old in that yeah, yeah. I fall in between. In which I think, like, all right, formal dress codes. Like this is like this is a thing of the past. There are these, yeah. you know, the there's lots of traditions in the Senate, and and the nature of norms, right? These informal rules is that they do evolve. Yeah. They do change over time, and and the idea that you have to wear a, you know, a coat and tie every day is like, it's just not the business world. It's not the professional world we live in. And so oftentimes those dress codes have been used to exclude certain, you know, economic classes or ethnic groups from, from, uh, positions of, of power. And so in that sense, I think great that this is going away, but the, the, the old, but not, or the, 
yeah, the old part of me that's not maybe fully old is also like, <laughs> mm, maybe they shouldn't have done away with it. Totally. <laughs> maybe there should still be some rules. And so I tend to find that there's, there's, you know, there's having some level of limits might be good, but yes, in general, I don't, I don't have a problem with certainly with relaxing the dress code. I think that's, that's, you know, good. Maybe a little clarification yeah. would have been smart, but you're also relying to some extent on people to use common sense about these things. The reaction tends to, in my mind, seems to be, you know, more stupid. It feels like there's, uh, you know, the, the idea of, of like raising concerns about this is one thing, but the sort of extremes, the, the sense of like the, you know, all the values of the institution are going away feels like this is, you know, overhyped. It feels like the, yeah. the, the, um, extremity of the reaction is more stupid than the extremity of the decision. This is this is good. I like this one a lot because, as you suggest, there's there's uh, there's different levels of stupid here, right? And I think they, they, I, I'm going to hand out stupid wildly, right? Oh, good. I think <laughs> I think the the idea that you've got a dress code is uh, that's stupid, right? That you should get rid of that. Uh, norms change over time, and the idea that you have to be in a formal suit that that's just stupid. Um, and I think the Republican reaction to it is sort of over. I should say overreaction is also yeah. stupid, right? And nobody's going to wear a swimsuit or a bikini, and so Susan Collins, like you're you're full out. Outrageous is stupid. Um, that being said, I will also point the finger at John Fetterman and saying wearing gym shorts and a hoodie on the Senate floor right. is also stupid, right? right? You know, I think there's a room here. We'll go, uh, you love norms, right? There's a norm at how we should dress and respect a certain space. When I come in and my students are wearing pajamas in the classroom, I feel like they're violating a norm, right? They shouldn't be able to wear pajamas in a classroom, right? There's no specific rule on that. I don't want a rule. There's a norm, right? If you're going to learn, if you're going to think, you shouldn't be in pajamas. And John Fetterman, I get that you like the hoodie and, and, and shorts, but when you're on the Senate floor, floor, respect some of those norms where dress a little more appropriately, right? So I, I think stupid on, plague on all of their stupid houses on this one. So, <laughs> so I, I feel like I should... Uh, push back or talk back a yeah, little yeah. bit on this. Cause as you were talking, I was thinking, you said, you know, nobody's going to wear a bikini on the Senate floor, but then you also go on to talk about how John Fetterman is wearing like athletic <laughs> shorts. True. And we yes, just yes. talked about, uh, Lauren Boebert, you know, vaping and groping out in public. Yes. Now, she's not in the Senate, but still it's like the idea. I feel like there's this sense that, well, nobody would do this, so we don't need to have rules <laughs> about it. But I think people, there are people who would do it. But on the other side, I think about like, I don't know, maybe we should, maybe this is again where, you know, uh, John Fetterman is maybe these are again, the norms that the social norms that have excluded, you know, working class yeah. or, you know, AOC has talked uh, about some of the stuff when, when she first arrived in the house and some of the informal rules and the expectations and how there were sort of financial, like, again, it requires money to buy suits or to do yes. some of this stuff. And so those are these kind of informal rules that have excluded people. And maybe this is the, where, you know, the Senate and the house should be more open, like a, Oh, you know, a working class person should be comfortable on the Senate floor and shouldn't be made to feel uncomfortable just because they don't, you know, spend their day in a thousand dollar suit or a five thousand dollar suit or whatever. This is interesting. And I, I, I take that point. Right. So that the question is, is John Fetterman do that because he's trying to represent uh, you know, a different class of people, or is yeah. he just like wearing hoodies, right? right. I don't, right. 
Right. So, no, I, I, I don't think you legislate this. I think you let norms determine. And if he wants to push back against that norm, it's OK. But I can also judge him for that. Right. Yeah. I mean, I, I think it's, you know, go to Costco, man, get a collared shirt. So it's, it's not, you know, you can make that work. All right. We'll, we'll come back to this when we evaluate all three of them. Our third situation. So, Phil, it's been 2000 years since the Roman Empire reached its historic peak of power. But apparently many men still contemplate it. Quite a lot. There's a new social media trend on TikTok where women are asking their boyfriends, fathers, or any man how often they think about the Roman Empire. I think this is just fantastic. And it turns out that men think about it a lot. Some say it crosses their mind on a weekly basis, even daily. Phil, I'm very curious to know just how often you think about the Roman Empire and whether you think that's stupid. I this, I find this topic so bizarre. Like I, I think it's so interesting that this is. I mean, my first reaction when you sent me this and like you, I, I sort of started reading about this, you know, whatever this social media yeah. trend, this TikTok trend where people were talking about it. What people actually? But I, so I thought this was insane. Like people actually think. But then I realized as I started thinking about this last night that yesterday teaching my class, I was talking about fascism and I was talking to the students about the term fascism comes from from Roman <laughs> soldiers and the the weapons they used to carry and so like, <laughs> it is a really fascinating thing like because it's not just like modern day americans that are as somebody who looks at like you know political like nationalism and the the you know the evolution of sort of national stories all these countries try to like hearken back to the Roman empire, right? I mean, whether it's the czar or whether it's, uh, you know, which is a, a, a play or not a play. It's the, it's their, it's their version of, um, Caesar, right. And the Kaiser yeah. in Germany, which is a version of the term Caesar and like France and Germany, all these other countries have claimed to be, Russia has claimed to be the sort of heir the, of the, you yeah. know, the third Reich even, right. Gets back to some of this. And so, um, uh, it's not just modern men who pay attention to this. It seems like an awful lot of people do. Yeah. And that does seem pretty stupid. I mean, I like, it's not <laughs> it, just in the sense of like the Roman empire is really significant and important, but not like so disproportionately. So that right, men, right. like 2000 years later are thinking about it on a daily basis. How, how often do you think about the Roman empire bill? Well, when I first heard about this on uh, this TikTok trend and how often men think about uh, the Roman Empire, I thought that's stupid. Men are being stupid. And then I was just thinking about this, and I so I gave a, a, a online lecture this afternoon where I brought up the Roman Empire. <laughs> <laughs> We're talking about the rise and decline of, of great empires yeah. and long cycle theory and imperial overstretch. And I mentioned the Roman Empire, and I go, well, maybe I do this more often. I would say I don't think about it a lot, but apparently I think about it enough. Um, yeah. I guess. I think on some level it's stupid, but I'm glad that men are at least thinking about some historical events. I wish I wish we were a little more educated about what's going on contemporary, but I'm glad at least there's, you know, there's at least we're trying. Yeah, so. yeah. I think the downside is that it feels like men probably think about the sort of glorified, mythologized version of the Roman Empire yes. and not the actual reality of the Roman Empire. But anyway. Yeah, yeah. All right. So now we got to come to the big question of these three situations mm. and circumstances. Which one do you think, Phil Barker, is the most stupid? Mm. Uh, well, again, it depends on what you mean by stupid, yeah. I guess. If yes. we're talking about like individual actions and I'm trying to decide whether Lauren Boebert, you know, vaping and groping or Chuck Schumer eliminating a dress code <laughs> or men thinking about the Roman. It feels like Lauren Boebert 
is the stupidest of those, right? As yeah. a politician, knowing in the world today that there are cameras everywhere engaging <laughs> in this sort of behavior seems like the, the stupidest. And, and I don't know if I think about like which of these says the most about us as a society, I, maybe that one again, like I don't, maybe, I don't know. I, yeah. Maybe I go back to both of those. What do you think? Yeah, I, I tend to think so, too. Like uh, her, her hypocrisy, the stupidity of knowing that there's going to be a video, you shouldn't be vaping all. There's just, just again, layers and multitudes of of stupidness to all of this. So I think Lo- Lauren Boebert is the most stupid. The other ones, there are elements that are stupid, but also sort of redeeming. And mm. and so, yeah, I, I, I think Boebert stands the clear winner of this one. But but I love how we can really get into the nuances and the crevices of stupidity with this game. Is there anything problematic about yeah, you and I? going through all of these things and ultimately deciding that the stupidest of them was the action taken by the one woman we discussed. <laughs> this is true. This is true. We we probably should have been a little tougher on the men who keep thinking about the Roman Empire, right? That's that's pretty... If we're having a crisis of men, uh, you know, of, of masculinity, I think some of it probably comes back to this obsession with the Roman Empire. And maybe if we moved beyond that, uh, we could actually be a little bit more uh, modern men. I feel like if we really dug into like the toxic elements of of like white nationalism and whatnot, there'd be a lot of ties to the Roman Empire yeah. in that. Maybe, maybe we I, should go. Maybe I'm going to go that way. In the end. And, and maybe we should again. This maybe I should be a little tougher on on John Fetterman too. Sort of you know accepting the sort of the mm. the yeah, I'm not going to get dressed up and be professionalism. You know I think there's there's something to there too. But we can save that for another time. So all right, all right well we should wrap up. Uh, Phil, do you want to remind everybody how they can stay connected? Yeah, you can find us at thepoliticslab.com, where again you can find old episodes, you can find social media, but you can also find articles. Uh, the the opinion piece on on Joe Biden being too old is is up there. There's some stuff about the Canada India stuff if you haven't had a chance to read about that um, yet. Um, a story from ABC News on the the the, the notes taken on on uh, top secret documents. So all of that uh, and more you can find at thepoliticslab.com. That's fantastic. All right, Phil, I will see you next week, and you stay away from the COVID. I will. You be COVID-free by next week, okay? I, I'm, I'm sure I will be. All right. <laughs> Bye, Bye, Phil. Phil.